as an introduction to my introduction, I want to say that this episode is beautifully, wonderfully raw. If you have any sensitivity to colorful language, this might not be the best episode for you, but if you skip it, I'll be sad. Here, Chris and I talk about contemplative prayer, racism, working in prisons and jails, prison re-entry, and working with the local church. Hey, this is Josh. First off, I want to make sure you know about our journey through A Sunlit Absence. It's book two of Martin Laird's three-book series on contemplative prayer. We are working through the whole book together to practice, read, and study it. And then uh, Father Laird has graciously agreed to meet with us twice, two times during the course of the reading and the study and the practice. The first time will probably be around the end of chapter four. And then, of course, at the end, this will be an online Zoom meeting that you will be invited to. So it's not too late for you to dive in. We're only through chapter one. So please dive in. And so for this episode, I just spent an hour with Chris Hoke on Zoom, and we recorded our first of what I hope will become a series of check-ins. Uh, Chris presented with his friend Niners Garcia back on episode 19. That was conversation number seven. A couple of years ago, he was introduced to me through another mutual friend, and we have become fast friends. There's so much we have in common. He does jail work in Washington State. He's also a creative writer. He's published a fantastic book on his time at, at a jail there in Skagit Valley. I especially felt led to reach out to him to have this conversation because I'm somewhat desperate to do something tangible in the context of all of the race riots that are happening across our country in response to the death of George Floyd. And you'll hear in this conversation, I am wrestling with how to talk about race and justice. Who am I with all my privilege to enter into this conversation? And you'll note uh, when I ask Chris to comment on this, you'll note that he takes a long, deep breath and pauses appropriately. And I think it was that shared moment of silence that grounded me today to be with him and to be speechless. What do we say? How can we say anything that is important? Instead, I know it's a season for us to watch, to wait, and to trust the Spirit. Please, Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you are and how you would ask us to respond, and to respond with power and conviction, that we would not just be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. Amen. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chris. It's relatively raw and unedited. I hope it's another forum for you to feel like you belong to this journey with the invitation. It is a gift to have you as listeners. Amen. 
So Chris Hoke, it's great to have you on the Invitation Podcast for, it would be technically uh, the third time if I would release that episode with Scott and you. <laughs> What's the hesitation there, buddy? Oh man, I discovered uh, in October that I have ADHD. And uh, so I think it's part insecurity because going back after recording it and then listening to myself and I'm not in it. I don't have the same confidence of being in the episode. So to go back and listen to it again, like I got to prepare myself. Um, so I'm learning a lot. Yeah. I've got a lot of stuff on the shelf. I've got Makoto Fujimura. I've got David Dark. I've got, uh, do you know Julie Canlis? Have you heard of Julie, Julie Canlis? I heard she wrote a book trying to polish up uh, Calvin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you know that book? A lot of people have told me I need to read it when they hear me talk about Calvin. And yeah. I, I've, I've not felt a need to, but I, I'm sure she's lovely. Yeah, we, um, we ended up talking about my the chip on my shoulder with Calvin. Uh, and uh, she explained to me that her interest in Calvin comes from uh, Eugene Peterson. And uh, but she has a real devotion. Uh, she previously had had a real devotion to some uh, mystical writers. So um, the gift of being able to meet with you and to give this a shot as a potential first offering for uh, a regular uh, offering we could offer through the invitation is just that I get lonely. <laughs> and it's nice to have collaborators. That's the first first goal is just collaboration. It's just the joy of of uh, being involved with other people. But then specifically, you is that uh, we've I think identified. If this is too cheesy to say. Uh, you're a brother from another mother in many ways, in the sense that you have a background in leading worship, and uh, you might clarify a little bit of an evangelical Protestant upbringing, but then. Now have a devotion to the Eastern Orthodox tradition as well. Yeah, of course, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm a I'm a rabidly ecumenical mutt, but uh, uh -huh. but there, there's there's so much in the Orthodox tradition that is um, yeah. Uh, yeah. kind of the, becoming the spine for me yeah. my, of my muddiness. Have you uh, have you charismated? No, no. Is there still some intention for that? Nope. That's what we were talking to Scott about way back when? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't see that happening anymore. Yeah. Okay. I'm, a, I'm, now, a, I'm now a commissioned PCUSA pastor. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Which doesn't, when which that it's not that, that that's not even the reason. Like that's just kind of a goodie okay. that has been wrapped around me like a, a, a multicolored cloak I didn't ask for. Um, uh -huh. But that's pretty sweet. When did that happen? Mm, December. Congratulations. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I just ordered my first uh, clerics collar. Uh, nice. I don't need it with the guys I serve, but I might need it in, yeah. uh, on the streets with, with law enforcement. Yeah. Nice. I am uh, always wondering about ordination myself. I've had three different conversations in ministry over the years to be ordained, and it never came together for many reasons. Um. But uh, yeah, my main question is the advantages it would have 
as an ordained minister for the sake of the prison work. For the sake of what? The prison work, yeah. If it gives me any advantages, uh, freedoms, does it give you any more freedoms in the prison? Um, it did early on. It's one of those things like 1980s immigration. Like mm -hmm. even if you've got like a, a, you get one check at the checkpoint and once you're in, no one's asking you to show your documents anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, a ministry license through Tierra Nueva about five years mm -hmm. ago when I first uh, got into the Washington Department of Corrections. And that gave mm -hmm. me a certain set of keys I still have. And I don't, they never asked for an annual review. And I could have left, you know, I have left Tierra Nueva. And I've, I've, I'm needing to get my paperwork ready. And if they ever call my card, I can be like, hey, I've got a new PCUSA thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um... And yeah, it's just a gift to be able to have, have somebody who's a practitioner. And I think also I'm, I'm understanding that I am doing a very poor job of regularly connecting the dots between the retreat work, spiritual direction, uh, facilitating contemplative prayer and what, what in the world that has to do with being in a prison. So, uh, you, you gotta have Ray Leonard, you gotta have Ray Leonardini on your, on, on your, well, you know, what's what's exciting. So this might be, this is going to be the great reveal is that on Saturday, I had a Zoom conversation with Father Martin Laird. Oh yeah, cool. And he was talking about his prison work. And Father Laird goes in, into a prison? He does. Uh, I don't know how regularly, but he knows Ray Lombardini. Leonardini, yeah. Leonardini. Um, he knows Ray Leonardini, and he, in fact, just wrote some copy for a grant application that they are applying, that they're making right now for the, what's the organization called? Uh, he runs a prison contemplative fellowship. So, yeah, uh, I, just I, mean, I got, I got up. into contemplative prayer through a mix of Orthodox monasteries and going into Folsom prison with uh, Ray Leonardini doing pretty okay. uh, psychologically and trauma-informed centering prayer inside Folsom. Mm. And that was, ooh, that got me. I could talk about wow. that all day. And when was that? How long ago did, did that happen? Mm, maybe four years ago. Wow. And and um, so it's just to catch people up again that might not have listened to that first conversation we had way back with you and Niners, um, just describe for folks what it is that you're up to what underground ministries is. Yeah. So I've been up here in little Skagit Valley, Skagit County as well, Washington state. We're about an hour North of Seattle. I came up here 15 years ago from an over churched evangelical Southern California upbringing, uh, via one year in, um, in inner city missions in East Oakland, which turned my world politics and theology upside down, living in one of America's mm -hmm. poorest and more, more violent neighborhoods. Um, and kind of discipleship kind of began, even though I'd been in the kind of um, evangelical church um, kind of nursery for a while. Um, and then I, I went to, to Berkeley and was obsessed with uh, the Gospels. And so wrote a, a long uh, interdisciplinary undergrad thesis on the scandal of the Gospels and wanted to study theology. So I found this guy, Bob Eckblad, who was a THD mm -hmm. in Old Testament not just working with the incarcerated and the undocumented migrant farm worker population here in Skagit, but he, the way he was studying the Bible inside the jail was um, mm -hmm. more like Paulo Freire, um, you know, kind of pedagogy of the oppressed 
And so he was doing dialogical Bible studies, like a, a theologian, and integrating dialogically the conversations with the outcasts and the damned and the prostitutes and tax collectors of our time around the Bible and writing a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And so whew, I hightailed it up here after Berkeley because I didn't know where to go. I was really depressed and lost. Like I want to study theology, but I don't want to go study it in the ivory tower. Um, so it was a, it was just a godsend to come up to a small county jail to study mm. scripture. And what I didn't expect, I, didn't. I just came up there to learn jail as seminary, jail as biblical study uh, in context. Uh, I didn't expect that all the guys my age that were young and had tattoos on their faces and hands and necks and had colorful language, I didn't think I'd like them so much or that they'd mm. like me back. And I was lonely. I had no family to go to or girlfriend or friend, so I could stay late at night and do one-on-one -on -one visits. In the, in the visitation room, even though I was not a real pastor. And so it was in one-on-one -on -one rooms for years that I just felt, I felt like God became real to me in these tiny rooms in the human dumpster bin of, of a county jail. And I felt God's heart. Um, I didn't, ha I wasn't reading the mystics. I didn't have language for it yet, but I felt everything that evangelical worship songs had told me to feel, but I could never mm -hmm. conjure standing there in the dark with my hands up high in front of projector screens. Ooh, holding felon's hands though. That fire washed through me. I felt like I was falling in love every night I was there. And it wasn't with these dudes. It was with something else that loved them and loved me. And it's kind of this little triune triangle happened. God, me, other in those rooms. Anyway, that went from that love led me to getting involved with their, their lives, jumping over fences, crawling through trailer windows, uh, going to immigration courts, living with them, whatever it took to kind of navigate their underworld back to the land of the living. And it took me years of kind of pastoring gang members to realize even though they're a block away, there's a, they're fathoms below as far as the land of the living in, in, in a civic mm -hmm. world, um, legal, social, economic, um, psychological barriers that I was navigating for years. And so towards the end of about year 11 or 12 of doing this, one of the main gang leaders had become one of my best friends. I felt called to work with him and practiced what I later learned is now a movement and a, and a term, which is prisoner reentry. But pretty much it was just how do we get Nina's home and how do we help arrange our lives to receive him when he spit out of the system? Mm -hmm. um, so I put off a seminary for his release date um, and he lived with my wife and I, and we started, I wrote a book and that came out around the same time. And Nina's and I traveled around a lot and we worked with a lot of different groups and we, we did outreach together and we fundraised for him. And we eventually started a new nonprofit together called One Parish. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, we started a new nonprofit together called Underground Ministries. And while we were working with a lot of gang members coming out and accompanying them through their reentry process, um, I was really doing a lot of thinking about reentry as resurrection and what was just a sermon about Lazarus and a community rolling away the stone and all the civic barriers and economic barriers, housing, tattoo removal, LFO debt, um, and the layers as a contemplative image of all the layers of protective self, false self that the community undoes off Lazarus and probably us as well. Um, this image just became to be, became my whole landscape inside of looking at this messy, messy practice of re-entry out of mass incarceration as through the lens of practicing resurrection. And so that became our guiding image in 
uh, underground ministries. Uh, Neener's after about a, a year and a half made some decisions and cho- chose to left the organization. Um, but we are now moving forward with this image. Um, sorry, we're now moving forward with what was just an idea and now it's, it's our central um, offering and we're developing quickly called One Parish, One Prisoner, where it's not so much, hey, send some money for a little rogue outfit in the Northwest and we'll process the gang members for you. Now we're kind of like flipping it and saying, there's churches in every town and every city in America where people are being released from prison everywhere. What if every mm-hmm. church could be um, equipped mentally, spiritually, uh, uh, technically, to do some re-entry and become resurrection communities. So that's what we're doing now. And contemplative prayer has not only been a, a through line for me, what, what once was going to monasteries to reclaim my own sanity after kind of burning out, working on the streets, and then trying to shuttle some of those monastic practices into prison cells through envelopes. Mm-hmm. And then learning from Ray Leonardini, who did contemplative prayer in a prison. Um, and so it wasn't just like a, uh, upper middle class hobby for folks um, to kind of go do a retreat. I'm not saying that is for everyone, but you know, you get into the contemplative prayer scene, and it's it's just like any other yes. conference. There's just kind of keeners on the scene. Yeah. Um, but seeing that those monastic practices employed once again in a cell, in people in, in enduring um, quite Spartan circumstances and and suffering and extreme isolation. It was fascinating to me for the healing and the focus of my incarcerated brothers and sisters and for mine as well. And so now it's, it's also integrating contemplative prayer with uh, folks in churches as they want to jump into these meetings, doing one parish from prisoner and just fix this guy, figure, figure out the problems, fix them. But to, we've been using the welcoming prayer because while I practice more of a deeper silence, the welcoming prayer is almost like a training wheels for a group to read together and begin to let go of uh, so many desires to control ourselves and others and to actually welcome someone coming out of the social underground uh, elicits an inner resurrection as well of like the way we manage and repress people and the problem people in society is the way we manage and repress the problem parts of ourselves. And so that is, has been what's most interesting to me by way of a long, long, long introduction uh, now of underground ministries through the practice of one parish, one prisoner, wanting to also get people involved in relationship with the people we've repressed and in those relationships held with an open contemplative stance. A lot of folks in churches I'm realizing haven't really received much grace. Mm-hmm because the parts of them that most need it, they've, they've kept under such tight lock and key. And mm-hmm. there's, there's, and I, and I, I get that it's been in relationship with really messy people that can't hide their mess in prisons and jails with meth, meth addictions and domestic violence, where as opposed to folks in churches, the cops really get called on the domestic mm-hmm. violence that's happening in our churches, mm-hmm. in our homes. But you know, cops get called with when that happens, happened in the demographics that end up in jail. Um, mm-hmm. and, I don't know, that's, contemplative prayer is just like the internal key to do mm-hmm. internal prison chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I, I access the locked down parts with God inside me. Amen. Yeah, I've been um, trying to get this uh, date to happen. It's been difficult 
to know when and how to do this with the kids at home. Uh, but what has especially inspired me to make this happen today is the riots and the, the violence, the outcry across our country, the death and uh, the death of black men that just keeps keeps continuing again and again. And I want to talk about that. Um, so we'll hold that. Uh, but let me dive a little bit further into this. So do you then um, present regularly on contemplative prayer with these churches that you're trying to partner with? Tell me how many churches are you working with and what's that look like to, to invite them into this relationship with it? Uh, a prisoner that's getting out? Well, we've intentionally kept it small um, because okay. we don't have, because um, it's still a laboratory, right? It's, once yeah. I think our goal in the next three years is to have this really dialed in so we can just, we just, I just completed a very large Lilly Grant application uh, oh. for, to, so we can build this out so that by year five, we're working with five denominations and six different prison ministries and hopefully thousands can be starting to use this. But right now we, our first really messy pilot run was with three churches, big, big mm -hmm. Jesuit uh, Catholic church in Seattle, tiny little United Methodist church in a little fishing village up here that has like 20 people in it and like a mid-sized mm -hmm. Presbyterian suburban church right here that I'm sitting in. Right mm -hmm. now. Um, and we learned a lot. I didn't, it didn't even have learning modules then. I just kind of mm. threw people, into pairings and watch what happened. <laughs> there was like no guide. Um, okay. So now we have like a 24 month guide with modules and, and meeting structure okay. that begins with welcoming prayer and like application okay. process and everything. Um, but the, the way I'm introducing it now with, with the nine next churches, so we have 12 total, the first three and then the next nine, um, is just the welcoming prayer at the beginning of the meetings. And that okay. coming and then with like three minutes of silence, because unless people are really practicing, like it's like lifting weights, like a minute mm -hmm. is like a hundred pounds when you don't know what to do with group silence. Mm -hmm. So um, it's like welcoming prayer, three minutes and someone reads a welcoming prayer. And then the beginning mm -hmm. of the meeting structure is kind of a concentric circles outward of questions for the group. So it just frustrates the mm -hmm. desire to get to, okay, have you heard from the so-and-so in prison? All right. Is, is he, is he writing back enough? Have we learned about the crime? Just really unhelpful. Mm -hmm. But it begins with a series of questions of coming out of that silence. What am I, what am I learning about God's heart right mm -hmm. now? Oh, and all the questions are through this relationship with this person. So we're not getting mm -hmm. abstract, talking about our whole life stories. Through this relationship, wherever they're out that week and writing letters or building a relationship or being afraid or being neglecting mm -hmm. the relationship, what am I learning about God's heart? And then what am I learning about myself? And then what am I learning about this person? And now already, by the time we get to what am I learning about this person, we're in a different register. Mm. And then the fourth question is, what are we learning about this, this month about the stones and the layers between us? And that's language they've, they've learned about the stones or the social, the concrete structures and barriers and layers are the more interpersonal, spiritual, protective layers. We have cultural differences, distrust, fears, mm. prejudices, fakeness. Mm. So I am very interested in this connection between the prison and the church. That's the, um, the gist of what I'm hoping is it, I describe what I'm up to as a ministry to the church 
through the prison. Mm-hmm. So it's flipping it on, on the head where we would, in our traditional ministry model, think we're the Christians, we're the white people with, with assets, and we're going to come and bless these, these poor souls. And what I'm trying to do is, is to bear witness to the prophetic idea that it's actually the, the poor and the broken, the marginalized, the forgotten. It's those people in whom through, through Christ shines so much more brilliantly. So can you speak to that, that journey of, of your, your gifting, what you're interested in as far as that relationship between the prison and, and the parish, and then um, what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean... While you're talking, the first thing I wanted to say is, you know, white saviorism is a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, like any addiction, it takes years to be in recovery from it. Mm-hmm. Um, just realizing the drug is bad is the first step, and most people aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. then seeing how it, it um, has shaped me, yeah, I'm still learning. Like for years, I think I was experiencing coming alive inside that jail, right? Mm-hmm. And where, yeah, I was bringing, I, I was the, I was coming in a chaplaincy role. I was leading Bible studies. Um, but the f- process was far more mutual than any kind of ministry framework mm-hmm. I'd ever heard. Mm-hmm. And so whatever kind of framework I had in my head, it was not fitting with what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a while to really listen to your experience to throw off the frameworks you've received. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, um, so many guys might not have changed their lives or or stopped using meth or stopped gangbanging, but I was being Mm -hmm. transformed year by year and from being a privileged white intellectual kid from the suburbs into someone who, um, was very much like I swung hard for a while, very much against, um, the criminal justice system. Um, mm-hmm. from the courts to the guards and while, and while being so involved and realizing that it's not this one guard who's being a dick. I mean, there's a lot of those too, but like it was, it's, it's these systems that I've met some really cool mm-hmm. people that worked in jail and some really cool mm-hmm. defenders and prosecutors, but the system is just sick. Uh, and it's, and it, and it's broken and it's meant to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to process broken human beings and throw them away. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you start kind of putting the brakes on the recycling plant, People want to get you out of the way so if they can, the machine can move a little more swifter. Mm. Um, so it, it, the mutual process of change was in undoing, reforming my mind. It was drawing me deeper into the scriptures and seeing how Jesus in his ways just did not match being a upwardly mobile, system-complying, um, patriotic white American. Um, mm-hmm. So it's slowly converting me and converting me. Uh, the, the narratives that I would found very central for about 10 years were, was the story of the, you know, the famous conversion narrative of, of St. Paul on the road to mm-hmm. Damascus. But as I spent a lot of time in that story and reading it in prison uh, units with the Mata Salvatrucha or MS-13 in Guatemala, and I first started to see Saul as a traumatized young man in the empire. Um, mm-hmm. When you first see him, he's holding the coats of Stephen. Uh, oh, the, sorry, holding the coats of the zealots who were stoning Stephen, doing a street execution, and the zealots were nothing if not a gang in the empire. So he's a he's he's a he's a violent gang member. And as I watched his conversion, I saw that it wasn't a conversion. It's like a love arrest. And what if the light on his eyes 
don't know. Sorry, I'm dipping into a long Bible study that could be a, something <laughs> else. But, but the light on the eyes of Saul, eyes are how violence first entered him. And I began yeah. seeing that as a healing light and that he doesn't even profess faith in Jesus. It's just like this healing mystical activity on the streets. There's no conversion yet. Mm-hmm. And, but then the Holy Spirit or the voice of the resurrected Christ is also going like, meanwhile, in that very town, Damascus, speaking to Ananias, who's praying, the insider who's afraid, hey, I want you to go across the street and go into this locked room and pray for this dude. And he's like, basically like, hell no. You know, that's the person we see in the news. Those are the bad guys. And then Jesus is firm with the insider, not with the violent outsider. Jesus is firm with the insider and says, go, because he is my chosen vessel. And then Ananias goes and he crosses town. He leaves his comfort zone and he visits this person who's detained and who he's afraid of. And something happens in him. When he gets to him, he says, brother, that's an insider term that were the early disciples. Like that wasn't like mm-hmm. a, a normal greeting. And he says, brother, and he lays hands on him. And the, the scales fall off these eyes. So that, that proves to me there's, it's all about this healing activity happening in eyes is how a young man and how many, so many violent young men, violence first entered there, them, what they witnessed. And Jesus is healing them, their minds and their imaginations and their trauma and their spirits and the scales fall off. And that, at that story right there, that, that this, is a healing, this is a mutual transformation. This is a healing event for the traumatized, violent, quote, bad guy. And more importantly, it's a conversion of the insider who went from no to yes, mm-hmm. who went from I'm, that guy's a bad guy to you're my brother. Like the bigger conversion mm-hmm. is Ananias's. So for me, that's the blueprint for the mutual transformation that the old model, there's the bad guy and we're the faithful insiders. Most churches are stuck at the beginning of Acts 9. But what happens in that little room? Oh man, it, f- it flips everything. And then he, he, he goes beyond that. God didn't say, hey, take him home now, but he wanted to. He takes this, he could have said, take your healing, your eyes work later. Uh, but he, he brings him home and he incubates his new brother. And that, I'm sorry, that incubates the next apostle. So mm-hmm. that's the dynamic we're after and we're seeing now. Um, as these, those first three pilot churches I mentioned, they, they grow to love these guys coming home. They first did it out of a sense of call, like, ah, oh, I should do this, and this is biblical, mm-hmm. and this is justice, and this is the age of mass incarceration. But now they just love Jaime. They love mm-hmm. Sam. They love Leroy, who relapsed and went back to prison, and they're still writing letters with him. And, and they love him. They drive around town before Leroy got locked up, and they're, we've got retired ladies kind of softly pedaling the brakes and looking down streets and leaning, leaning forward looking for God's beloved down the streets instead of trying to hide. Like for me, that's a taste of, of God's kingdom. That's, that's the, that's the kinship we seek. The gift of calling someone brother to cross into that kind of revelation. It's, it's fundamentally a question of who, who you're open to, who you're close to. And it's shocking how closed I am still to so many people. And, and so it's interesting how I, the transformative effects of being in the prison have changed my way of thinking about the men inside there. And now with this uh, current situation happening across our country, it's, it's such an enormous 
Uh, it's such an enormous movement. I don't even know how to how to phrase my struggle here. How to be open to this? The question, if I can, uh, if I can transition here, uh, I just desperately need to talk to somebody that has some sense <laughs> how to talk about race. You know, this uh, being open, and uh, I I keep thinking, well, I've learned so much about. Race by being inside, but I'm I'm struggling to then integrate all of that into from the prison to Holland, Michigan. So, what's your your learning curve? How 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 can we as two overeducated white Protestant men how how do we wade into this? What do we? What's good for us? to think about, to talk about in terms of the killing of black men? Oh. What I've been saying on a few of my things that I've dared to post in social media in the last week or so is just naming these as crucifixions. Hmm. Um, that imperial violence just mowing down bodies of the poor and of, and of um, the slave class in the empire. Um, and I'm not, I mean, we could talk for a long time, but I'm not, I'm not qualified. I'm not, I'm not the voice to talk about social change or mm -hmm. about the pain that is erupting on the mm -hmm. streets. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, I feel like one standpoint I can speak to and I should speak from is what the hell good is our scriptures, our liturgies, if they don't train our, our, our eyes to see this story mm -hmm. and to see these patterns in ourselves and in our communities. If we can't see the cross today, mm -hmm. you can throw your hymnal out. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, maybe it's sweet. It's, it's got lots of nostalgia, but it's useless as far as discipling the imagination. It's useless. Mm. Um, mm. If, we're, if we sing about the old rugged cross and we think like the Roman guard, mm -hmm. then the song is, has, needs to be buried. Mm. Um, we need practices where, mm. to translate and update a faith with symbols that are so loud and clear to at least we're not, I'm not even talking about appropriate action yet. I'm just saying, saying, seeing well, mm -hmm. um, whereas God is the slaughtered minority by imperial violence. Like that is the one we yeah. worship. And if there's mm -hmm. any bone in our body that wants to denigrate the ones being mm -hmm. crucified or justify it, um, in the sake of, of the Roman order, mm -hmm. um, 
we just have to admit we failed our faith and our, our tools that we've spent mm -hmm. so much money and time and sent our kids to Christian colleges. It has failed. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we would have better responses of action if, if we've been seeing rightly better for the last several decades. Mm -hmm. If we were following Jesus to the tables of tax collectors and sinners, of meth cooks or, mm -hmm. or human trafficking um, participants and victims. Mm -hmm. If we will have seen, um, I don't know, I mean, like, let, let's go back to the, let's go back to Saul. What were the zealots? The zealots were an armed response of oppressed Jewish minorities in the empire. And, um, their violence against the Christians was, was just, just a, a, a subtlety of them trying to enforce uh, their methods over their own race. But really, it was, it, was an, it was an armed resistance to imperial violence and standing up saying, fuck this. And that, I feel God honors almost the impulse, or at least he honors the wound in gangs mm -hmm. by saying, I'm taking a gang member to be mm -hmm. about my kingdom. Not mm -hmm. taking a Roman soldier. <laughs> I, want, I want Peter to go into the home of a Roman soldier. I want to take mm -hmm. a minority faith leader who's uneducated and have him bring the Holy Spirit into the home of the ICE agent, yes. Cornelius. Yeah. Or, or into the police lieutenant. Because I Good. love them and I'm going to transform them. And I'm going to, this is the Holy Spirit's way of slowly humanizing even the instruments of imperial violence by reaching yeah. the hearts of Cornelius. Or even when Jesus yeah. has interaction with the uh, with the centurion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some folks might have uh, been, you know, they're listening. Might think that I took this this hard right from that question of being open, and and thinking about that movement in your parish prisoner, uh, um, this new ministry that you're you're embarking on, and then to go to what's going on. I think this is why I. I love my time with you and I'm glad to have you here is because um, you can absorb and see that all these things are connected. So this goes back then to, you know, you're naming the failures of formation of catechesis to, to be able to, to, as you said, train the imagination to be able to see what is going on. And, and so that goes to the thesis of the, the invitation as a, as a ministry in the prison of understanding that the incarceration rates in the United States are the largest indictment against American Christianity, that if we are such a Christian nation, then why do we have two and a half million people incarcerated right now? Yeah. I mean, and most of them being black men. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to, to, to frame it, so it doesn't seem like a weird idea, but to, to frame this in the, the Christian imagery we have. Jesus called his disciples to follow him to the cross and he goes into the grave mm -hmm. itself. And the, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the catalyst of our faith is, is, is at the rolling away. Not just the, you know, I use the Lazarus story a lot, but in, in the Easter moment, the resurrection um, is about undoing imperial death. Mm -hmm. Undoing it reversing it, mocking it, triumphing over it. Um, 
And so to be in relationship with those who are incarcerated is, is to approach the tomb. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think the disciples would be the disciples unless they had a transforming encounter at the tomb. Mm-hmm. And, and that the body coming out of the tomb is the voice coming out of the tomb is the voice of God. That totally went against all, that goes against temple religion. Temple religion mm-hmm. is there's big, there's some big smoky incensey mystery who is up above you and you need to lift up your hands to a big amorphous, terrifying mystery. Um, that's temple religion. And Jesus religion is God is in the face the scarred, sweaty human face of a person that was disposable and saying, this is the Imago Dei. Why are you asking what the Father looks like? Philip, how long have you been with me? When you see me, you see the Father. What? If we believe this is the truth, it completely goes against temple religion. Most Christianity is just different forms of temple religion. Mm -hmm. Getting in the big box, lifting up your hands and offering up sacrifices and getting a little scripture sprinkled in as opposed to going to the tombs is the story we've heard is where the glory of God yeah. is revealed. Yeah. So I think if there's a way on the podcast or in prison ministry, what we're trying to do with through the mm. miracle of reentry, like, Hey, they're coming back to your community. We're making this real easy. You don't have to go to do prison yeah. chaplaincy. You just have to write letters yeah. with this person and welcome them into your stable little community. Without yeah. those relationships, I don't know how we follow Jesus. I really don't. Like, tell me where that yeah. story is being right. acted out in our lives. Tell me. Right. Right. And when this comes down in practice, it's some of the the um, clarification I have to do. It's things I take for granted, why I need to communicate more about what I'm doing in the prison. Um, or what I get to partner with the Spirit and, and seeing God do in the prison. Um, to go and behold, um, is, Hey, you know, this just seems like a lot, you know, you got a podcast and then you're doing retreats and spiritual direction. And then you're in this prison, like, how does this all fit together? And for me is it's, it's very clearly what Jesus would, would do. You know, he was praying with people, teaching, and he was with the poor he was with the broken. He went, he made a beeline to, uh, people in misery, the sick, the sick, the oppressed. And so you go and you do that, and then you go talk about it. And you say, look at what my father's doing. <laughs> you give thanks. Yeah, so I think I, that's uh, just where the heart of God goes, is it goes mm-hmm. to take care of, God wants to take mm-hmm. care of God's people. Mm-hmm. And that he wants to bring us along. So I think the following Jesus is, following along with God's heart, with skin on, rushing to the pain mm-hmm. to heal and restore and embrace mm-hmm. his people. Mm-hmm. It's not a self-improvement project. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's jumping on the, the divine ambulance mm. and, uh, and, and going for the ride of your life. Yeah. And then, well, you find, and then you. we find our healing once we get in the ambulance. We didn't think we needed healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to the jail and I didn't know I had things to be healed of. I didn't know how furious I was. I still am. I don't know what a terrified, anxious, borderline suicidal mess I am when I'm, when I'm at my lowest mm-hmm. until I sat with other people that didn't, weren't so good at hiding it. And then as I mm-hmm. f- held their hands and 
felt God's love and tenderness rush to them in my heart and in my words. It's like, oh, that's for me too. That's what mm-hmm. I needed. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what you're saying, to be that open, to call that brother. It, it's It's such a huge learning curve of the Spirit where we don't even know that it's possible. And and so the holy space of the prison is these guys have already gone before us and made mistakes, but not all of them come to prayer. Uh, the ones that self-select to come are ready to deal and to face th- that openness and to go there. And so the fact that you could see them doing it time and time and time again, going there, opening, opening again, opening, opening, so raw, so beautiful. I'm, I'm saying like, who else in the planet does this? And this is a real thing. This is possible. And it's so refreshing. Uh, I, I, that's why I was just telling, uh, Father Laird actually that, uh, I know it's a pain for me to be gone on the Saturdays when I'm, I'm gone two Saturdays a month. It's hard with, with small children, but Susanna gladly blesses me going. She's, she knows it's good for me. I come back helped. I come back readjusted. I, I, I need it. So, um, going back to that question of, um, formation, the, uh, the way to train the imagination, what you're saying is if our, if our worship, if our liturgies do not help us see. So that, that reminded me of as I was wrestling with how to, how to actually pitch this work I'm doing through going through a sunlit absence and then inviting people to some online conversations with Father Laird. Um, like, how, how do I do that in the midst of this, these, this, this pandemic globally and then all the, the racial riots and upheaval? How do I say to people, come on over here and let's be silent? Well, my, my catch line is that contemplation helps us see ourselves. So I don't know how to necessarily talk about it yet. You know, I don't know how to like... Well, yeah, well, you said the, the title of your email you sent out this morning, like that helps us see yes. our part in the mess. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Sit real still, you see the plank in your eye. Yes. Yes. And that's such a, like a cliche statement you might learn and, um, you know, VBS as a kid, you know, the plank in your eye, the speck, um, but the contemplation actually helps shift your consciousness so that you can behold what a miserable SOB you are, <laughs> so that you could then not dwell in that despair and lose yourself, but then you can actually name why you need a savior. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, and maybe it's also looking, it's like, kind of like what I said about, um, contemplation as I've experienced it is kind of like doing prison chaplaincy within. Mm. And I think in the same way, like to go to a prison is only compassion, compassionate, but you're very aware when you go into a lockdown facility, folks have done some bad stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and more compassionately and theologically folks are, are not well. Right. There's the, there's, there's, you know, sin as sickness, not, not violation or crime. And I think in the same way to do prison chaplaincy within, it's to sit with my sickness. Mm-hmm. And like even this morning, like, uh, you know, 
I sit down, I'm anxious, but anxious is just bubbles on the surface, like what's really going on? And I sit down and I'm just saying the word or phrase that I felt I needed to sit with this morning. And the fruit of doing it for years is I could pretty quickly just kind of uh, relax into this immediate awareness. Like I was such a turd to my mom yesterday on the phone. And, but, but not in like a beating myself up way. It's like, that's what I'm running from. That's the sand in my shoes. Okay. It's so itchy that makes me want to keep moving. I feel kind of rotten. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really uncomfortable with the ambition that's been bubbling around in me for the last mm-hmm. month writing this grant that I need to think ambitiously and how do I grow and who do we have as our endorsers? And, and it's right. just, it's just not sitting well in my heart and, it, and, and it, only in that stillness, I'm like, what do I do with this? Well, the normal moves are to project it on someone else, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And we've got a president mm-hmm. that's just like a, a, a cartoon, like <laughs> daily, like uh, caricature of how to mm-hmm. project onto others your own problems and not admit <laughs> your own wrongdoing. Um, mm-hmm. Like just, just watch him. And after a while, after, you know, after you get after about 40 days of hate, you're like, oh, God damn, that's what I do. I'm, I mean, someone doing it like that should not be in leadership position, but... But mm. what an uncomfortable mirror for what I do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it, it's like contemplation is the medicine for being like that guy. Is mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I've got some of this stuff that I don't want to project or run mm-hmm. from. And then that's why contemplative prayer normally gives you these really helpful fire hoses to, when you see these fires of yuck inside is lord have mercy mm-hmm. <gasps> oh yeah. yeah i believe in this thing where i can just see my shittiness and be like and now i can just ask for mercy and i don't have to justify it i don't have to defend myself i don't have to compare myself or project it on someone else i don't have to do better next time i can just say damn just can you have compassion on what an asshole i am on god mm-hmm. Whoosh. it's like this warm what does naughty bulls weber say it's like a car wash for the soul mm. um it feels it, mm. it's good, mm. um, and th- and then later on when I see other people playing those lame games, there's a little less heat or contempt in mm-hmm. my judgment because I'm like, yeah, that's not good, and I know exactly what it feels like to be doing that, and mm. I'm complicit, and I'm learning to receive God's mercy for me, and I'm learning how to handle you, the way God mm. handles me. Mm. Has it been? Uh difficult for you to quiet yourself since quarantine started up has have you had difficulty praying totally yeah well i I suck at praying all the time but i mean it's nice that i can blame quarantine now for being especially bad at it (laughs) um yeah i mean it helps me empathize with guys locked up because i've always been like hey you got time yeah you're not especially with my friends in solitary confinement i am you units like you know i've got this whole thing of like it's you know you're stuck in this cell yeah it's the opposite purpose of why people are in ministry in monasteries but 80 percent of your situation is maybe similar macgyver that shit Mm -hmm. you know like flip its purpose and Mm -hmm. and but now i'm realizing just on like an experiential level when you're confined it's especially hard you know like well okay i'll just lean back and just do some prayer like 
there's yeah. this um, kind of limbic stress just screaming in the brain. Um, mm. it's, it's really hard when you're mm -hmm. stuck for hours and days at a time, as opposed yeah. to, man, I'm exhausted. It feels good to sit down anyway. Um, but when mm -hmm. you're already stuck, I don't know, I feel like I have more compassion for guys rather than giving them the, the beautiful pitch for why they can start practicing when they're in the hole. Like, how do you get through the day and just breathe? Yeah, you've got time, yeah. but your head is screaming. Your brain is saying, get me out, get me out, get me out, get me out, get me out. Yeah. Yeah, I've been fascinated by the explosion of creativity throughout our culture. Uh, somebody was telling me that like pro audio sales, microphones and interfaces and software for recording has gone way up and guitar sales are way up. Um, you know, like the very first thing I remember that was offered for kids was Mo Willems coming to do the, the drawing hour for kids at noon. And um, so when it comes to this, you talk about that limbic pressure. It, it's so amazing how creativity, the need to make something and so thinking about the monastic practice, the Benedictines, and then in the prison. And uh, when I, when our, in our lobby at the prison, when I'm waiting, we have these glass cases with all the things that... Are you still there? Okay. Um, we have these glass cases with all the things the dudes have drawn or sewn together or whatever for a little, little sale. And um, so, yeah, just the necessity to think about prayer then in the context. I've been doing a lot of carpentry. So how to understand that there's something grounding in my body or when I'm cooking, I've been doing a lot of cooking for the family, how to bring my body to a place of rest and quiet. So for those that are still scratching their head, trying to figure out, you know, do I really understand what Josh and Chris are talking about in terms of contemplation? I want to keep in, in encouraging folks. And this is a, a note that Chuck DeGroat has worked with me on in another episode in the sense of beginning with just understanding how to be present. The very beginning of, of this kind of prayer is, is being present to what's actually going on inside of myself. So you're naming yeah, yeah. the things that show up on your radar when you quiet yourself. It's not quite a silence yet, inner silence. You're noticing the noisy things that haven't been attended to at first. And sometimes that can happen, uh, for me, most effectively, while I'm working with my hands, I all of a sudden have a chance to be away from the kids. It's quiet outside. And then I'm realizing, oh man, there's all this going on inside of me. So that when I do do my sit with my prayer to, to practice content, it's, it, it makes more sense. It's a lot easier now that to pray for me that we're whatever, two months into this or, or than the first three weeks were just crazy. I couldn't sit still. And uh, I was being, it was really hard. It was really confusing. Still is, but anyway. Well, one of two of the things that, I mean, it's so easy to flip into like professorial voice. Let me start over. <laughs> when I hear you say that, it makes me think of two different teachers and what they've said that I keep forgetting and then keep remembering. One is um, Anthony Bloom. He's, 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 a, he's an yeah. activist that became an Orthodox voice. And in his book, I, I've, I haven't read the whole thing beginning to pray, but I feel like oh, every page I randomly yeah. open to and read and then yeah. underline something, he's saying the same thing over and over, which is 
desperation is the beginning of prayer. It's mm. not, I want to connect with God. It's not, I want to be a better person. It's a cry of pain. It's a, whether it's loneliness or existential despair, um, guys in prison. I mean, I, the, the neediest guys in our community or gals, they're not just walking around the streets being, man, I really want to pray. But man, when they're in jail, <laughs> and they get cynical about that, like, oh, I don't want to just become one of those persons that only prays when I'm in jail. And I feel like Anthony Bloom would be like, no, it's precisely natural. Mm -hmm. That's when authentic mm -hmm. prayer begins, is when you feel authentic need. And normally it's when mm -hmm. shit's going bad. Um, and then Father Richard Rohr says, there's three paths to God's heart. There's the path of great love, and there's a path of great suffering. And in, in the meanwhile, if you want a very slow man-made option, it's contemplation, like, mm -hmm. or, which is just a daily micro, micro dosing of trying to enter mm -hmm. into great love and embracing our great suffering. But normally, yeah, it's great suffering that'll take us into, that'll open us wide to God's love. And then he even says, mm -hmm. even great love eventually will lead you to great suffering. So ultimately it's great suffering and it's desperation that's going to make you open up that heart wide and say, I don't know what you are. Theology is the last thing from my nine. Come and give me breath. I long for that connection like a child breaking out into the, out of the womb. Hold me. I'm not okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's that opening again to, if we open to love, a lot of, a lot of people have the hard heart and they're closed because somewhere in their journey, they realize that if they open just to this love, that that's a vulnerability. There's some sort of unacknowledged uh, hesitancy to to really go for it. Because if that if that love's real and I open myself, then where is this going to stop? How much more love is there behind that love? And so it's just easier to not try to keep my heart closed than to make myself vulnerable because that's ultimately that, that is an infinite desire that leads us, like you're saying to God. So following, that's also a very Ignatius, um, that your, your desires will lead you. If you follow the desire beneath the desire, beneath the desire and you investigate it, then you will eventually be led to your God hungers. So, um, are you able to get inside to your facility there? In the prison, no. Do you have any, I'm not either, and are, do you have any word what that might look like when you might get back in? Mm, I don't. One of the superintendents is ro rolling off of our board, um, and so I'm pretty close to one of the superintendents that's working with, you know, S State Department of Corrections and finding their path out. I don't know. Um, for me, that doesn't change much because I've gone into the prison a lot less. Like reentry is more my game, and I don't really like oh, go okay. in now to do like some some interviews or to or to teach in a class um, okay. or to do some one on ones. Um, but really, it's organizing these one parish, one prisoner teams. Okay. And the right. the hardest thing for that right now is you got these guys out who mm -hmm. aren't really taking lockdown very seriously. And it's not like mm -hmm. a liberal conservative thing. They're, they're not, they don't have the Trump mind on it. They're not, there's yeah. just kind of like this, 
they don't come from a culture of rule following or like, sure. or like, well, we're just going to follow this because we're, we want to do the right thing. They don't think it's a conspiracy. You know see what I'm saying? They're not like ideologically undermining quarantine and coronavirus. They're just, they're not about to like self-impose limitations. And so yeah. they're hanging out, they're hugging, they're seeing friends. And then they've got these one parish, one prisoner teams that have been writing for months. And they just, the two guys got out on March 1st, right here in our valley. And, and our, our state went into lockdown March 10th. And so in the very first month out, the very people that we had spent a year developing release plans for presence and walking with them and going to appointments and spending meals together and doing things with their family, they're all saying, I, I can't see you and I can't touch you. Mm -hmm. Which for me is so tragic to watch because mm -hmm. I'm watching these folks in churches, which are doing everything they should be doing. They're not going out. Yeah. Especially there's a lot of retired folks, right? The more vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just tragedy. Mm -hmm. And that mm. these, and, and the guys on the outside, I don't think they're getting it. I mean, they're so kind. They'll be like, hey, yeah, no problem. You, you, you know, I get it. But emotionally, I think they're feeling like, I'm seeing people all the time out here. The streets all hug me still. Yeah. And all these folks in churches yes. following the rules and under, following very, very good health protocols. I'm not trying to question that. I'm just saying it's just tragic for me to watch relationship and reentry be completely blocked in a new way right when these mm -hmm. folks need embrace and they need community mm -hmm. and they need connection. So I feel like the people that don't have, that are most in need of connection right now are being mm -hmm. denied it. And it's really hard for me to watch. So I've self-contaminated a few times and I probably, yeah, yeah. It's such a, I don't even want to say that. But hugging these guys, but yeah, I've not socially distanced well. Mm. It's, yeah, it's just tragic. It's just a total tragedy of, of epidemic and good public health, but um, pretty hurtful. Um, perfect storm. Yeah. All these things. So what I've been on. trying to do, at least with the churches who are still writing someone who's locked up, is to try to, mm -hmm. to really, really put a positive pivot on that with kinship of, you know, you're now and you're, you're both in lockdown right now. And what better time to write letters? What better time to be aware of, yeah, this, like, like this one really retired lady said, right? The week even before lockdown started, her retirement home, like a March 2nd, was um, already imposing some, some uh, yeah, quarantine orders. And, and she's like, man, I'm hating this. And I just <laughs> realized this week this is what she opened our group with coming out of like that few, first few minutes of, of silence and welcoming prayer. She's like, this is what Jesse has dealt with for 20 years. How has he mm. done it? And there's oh, awe, yeah. there's awe in her voice. And for me, that's yeah. like, boom, slam dunk. Now we're doing this right. right. Exactly. He's been doing this for 20 Very years. Cool. And how does he do it? And I was just like, Very cool. what a great question for your next letter. And then her light, eyes just like listen, light up like, oh yeah, I could ask him. Yeah, ask mm. him. He's got so much he could share with you on that. Yeah. And she, she's like scribbling away and already writing her letter in her, in her loopy grandma yeah. cursive to, <laughs> to Jesse, who had a life sentence and who's now getting out later. Like it's loopy grandma cursive. I want to see some of that. Well, um, yeah. And these guys are paroled. Oh, some of the guys who have, uh, have had reduced sentences or have gone through the clemency process. Okay. Yeah, I, I've had about, I don't know, six or seven 
brothers get out in the last six months, but they're all paroled. And the Michigan Department of Corrections policy is that if they're the way they call it still on paper, I, I'm a volunteer. I can't have any interaction with them. Oh, paroled. You mean they're out in their own, like we call it probation or supervision. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have a, they still call them parole officers in Michigan. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's awkward. I, I didn't realize that until after I'd already met with one of the guys and actually recorded a conversation with him, hoping to be able to produce it for the podcast. It's the first chance I could actually get some tangible voice who's been with me, beautiful brother, you know, five years. And then I found out I wasn't even supposed to meet with him and uh, I could probably get a big slap on the wrist or I could be dismissed from my yeah. status as a volunteer if I have interaction with guys. So I'm so handcuffed to their rules and regs. It's, it's very difficult for me. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of department of corrections are really a reckoning is coming on that day. And it's going to be because prisons are their mandate for re-entry solutions is going to trump that old policy, which is, I don't know. The policy probably comes from, I mean, for listeners. Yeah. It's what, that's what Josh is saying, that like volunteers who go in and build these relationships, they're actually mm-hmm. not allowed to have mm-hmm. relational contact on the outside as like mm-hmm. some like extreme imposition of, of, of clinical boundaries that like only mm-hmm. like therapists would have. But that's not why most people go in and do this. Um, yeah, right. And, and, that's, and, and, and but, this awkward. but I think people in prisons are realizing the few blessed souls who choose to sacrifice and donate and volunteer their time and and come into these facilities and build connections with these guys, that's the greatest asset we have for them to have a pro-social re-entry support mm-hmm. on the outside. Mm-hmm. And if we need to just do better vetting or training so that there's not, you know, sexual abuse or grooming or abuse of power, those are real. But what's more real is people's need to follow mm-hmm. up on wonderful new positive contacts once they get out. They need that yeah. person and the next 10 person connected to them. So that's what yeah. we're trying to do with one parish, one prisoner is that not to have people need to come into the facility as volunteers first. And then now they're disqualified from being reentry is through letters right off the bat. Mm-hmm. They're, they're able to have a correspondence relationship and then a pro and then they can start making visits as a family and friend would. Right. That's cool. And then, and then they're right there at the gate to pick them up and continue. That's, that's genius. That's genius. Well, I mean, these, Chris, are, these are the gates I, uh, of Hades we're dealing with, right? Oh, man. And if Jesus I, says, I, on you, rock, I build my movement, and the gates of Hades can't stand against it, I feel like that, if anything, should be the art of the church. It's learning mm-hmm. how to navigate the gates of death and, and of the underworld. And if, yeah, if we put half our energy into figuring how to navigate the gates of Hades around us, more than setting up worship PowerPoints, the church would be so mm. kick-ass. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then the question that I'm, really the invitation is attempting to do is to be that translator between that space around the gate. Totally, yeah. To be able to... You, you, your podcast is spanning creatively the gates of Hades. Exactly. You are yeah. doing Ecclesia right now, dog. <laughs> and it's not going to be something that most people quickly identify because it's going to have to take uh, people that already have some sort of an appetite either for contemplation or for justice 
And I think uh, it's 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 genius. I like it. I'm a, on the Enneagram, you know, I'm a four. I like to do really special, you know, secretive, uh, clandestine things that are not very well understood. And so I can survive in it, but I also get lonely. And so it's really good to be able to see your face on Zoom here. And, um, and I hope we get to do this again. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Next time I'll bring one of my guys in. Maybe we'll be oh, six man. feet apart. That would be so <laughs> rocking. And um, there's also this this idea that if you uh, have other people, like if we wanted to get Ray on here somehow creatively in time. Yeah, I'm on a Zoom with I'm, I'm on a Zoom with him in an hour right now. Oh wow, fantastic! Well, plant the seed with him, and uh, we'll see see what we can do to use this platform to stir people up to think about. Actually, you know what's cool? Little little um, little plug for the invitation. Um, there's been a small handful of people that because I went and visited their church or, or whatever that have independently of me just figured out how to get into prisons in other parts, other states, uh, overseas, as well as as uh, in Oklahoma and. And so the idea here is to talk with, with this in a way, talk about this in a way that really stirs people up, not just to think about it, but actually go and do some of it. So, Are we in the, the wrap-up breath? Sure. I think you got something more, yeah. I just, I just feel like as you're wrapping up, I'm just aware of if this conversation is for anyone. Uh, I don't know. I just feel like I want to speak to the listener for a second, just offer, yeah. offer a blessing. Uh, mm. I mean, a lot of the listeners that this is geared for is for for pastors, right? I mean, anyone can listen, but you've been really attentive, yeah. like, you know, people who are in some kind of church leadership. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm still learning a lot about my, my listener base, but um, I would say these tend, tend to be uh, Christians that have seasoned, seasoned years, and a lot of them are in leadership for sure, yeah. Well... Hey, you listening right there. <laughs> um, I want to ask your forgiveness. Uh, just aware of, um, you know, just little things I catch myself and even this conversation, trying to be a smarty pants, um, trying to be holier than thou, trying to act like what I'm into is, is what's most important. Um, so first off, please forgive me. That's annoying. Second, <laughs> secondly is... Um, if any of this that we're talking about is stirring up something inside you, I mm. just want to bless you and your attention to just listening to that. It may have little to do with what Josh and I are saying, but just something's being maybe bumped or stirred and God's wanting to invite you into something. Ooh, that's the, that's the podcast title. I promise I didn't plant that. So I, I, I just bless you to not feel that you need to now do something else to be in line with this. But I, I bless you with kindness to yourself and with a curiosity to listen to the parts inside you that have been locked down for a long time, that you have controlled too well, and that maybe God, God is wanting to love a very wounded, very angry, maybe immature and unloved part of you way deep down there and that you've put in the hole and for you to just ease up your department of corrections inside and welcome God's love to come to that, that part of you that you just wish would just disappear hmm. and that God would visit it and listen. 
with tears on God's cheeks to that wounded part of you and that you would eavesdrop and join in on that love. I bless you in Jesus' name. God, hold us and our deepest cries that we can hear them in ourselves and resonate with the cries underground today and in the streets today. That you hear our cries and we don't want to stifle them in the streets or stifle them in our hearts, but that welcome your embrace to get to the root of the cry. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Chris Oak. Brother, I love you. I got to go. There's a call just came in right now that I'm, I'm late for. I love you. This is awesome. Let's do it more of it. Okay.